1: All right, Andre, what do you know about cash ruling everything around me? <laughs> I, I think
2: it's fair to say it's a pretty common perception among us cynical people that politics is corrupt and that money
1: buys influence. Prime Minister Stephen Harper has just formally called an election, kicking off what will be the longest campaign in modern Canadian history. And some people say the reason he's calling it this early is because he and the Conservatives have a financial incentive to do that.
2: Yeah, I heard a little something something about that, because apparently the Conservatives are really good at fundraising. They have a huge war chest. But... I want to know how they managed to do that. Who's putting money into their pockets? And another question, how are the NDP and the Liberals managing to catch up for this long
1: campaign, this marathon? Do donors actually curry favor with political parties by handing over the cold hard cash? I mean... Can you actually buy an election? Well, we're about to find out.
2: It is our first episode of this federal campaign period. And to be real here, it does feel like the campaign started a long time ago, but we are going to go deep into the world of political fundraising and campaign financing.
1: All right, man, let's go. I'm Desmond Cole. And I'm Andre Demise. And this is Canada Land Commons. This episode of Canada Land Commons is brought to you by Audible the world's largest online audiobook service. One book that listeners of Canada Land Commons might like is Between the World and Me by Ta-Nehisi Coates. This book is written in the form of a letter from Coates to his teenage son about the realities of growing up black in America. It's challenging, it's heart-wrenching, it's really just essential reading and I think you should pick it up. You can read this book or any other in Audible's 180-volume library for free with a 30-day membership. Just visit audible.com slash CanadaLand to get started.
2: All right, so joining us today are two experts in political finances. We've got Harold Jansen on the line, and Harold is the Chair of Political Science at the University of Lethbridge, and he specializes in party finances. Thanks for joining us, Harold. Oh, thanks for having me on.
1: We've also got Jerry Nichols today, and Jerry is a communication specialist who has worked as a fundraising mercenary. He also self identifies in his Twitter bio as one of Canada's top five political minds. Welcome, very humble Jerry.
3: <laughs> Glad to be here.
1: All right, so
2: first question I have for you is how much does money matter in our politics?
3: Well, I'd say money is the lifeblood of politics because you, you need money to do just about everything. You need money to buy lawn signs, you need money to commission. Uh, public opinion polls you need money to rent office space and of course you need money to run ads you need money to run tv ads and radio ads and put up websites so if you're going to be a serious political campaign you got to have the dough you have to have the resources to do it you also need to spend money to make money nowadays
4: so fundraising itself is actually fairly cost intensive so that requires money and the other thing i would add to that is we sort of have this quaint idea of political parties as these volunteer organizations but at the national level certainly that's not the case they become very very professionalized operations that you don't leave a lot of those things to amateurs that's a key part of it as well as political parties have become professionalized as fewer people become members and get involved we have to pay for more things than we did in the past
1: harold keep going on that give us a little bit of insight into how sophisticated the federal party's fundraising systems are.
4: Well, a big part of it is tying in with voter identification and tracking. So during this campaign, every interaction you have with a political party, whether it's somebody calling you up live a robocall, someone coming to your door, uh, they keep very careful records of how receptive you have been to their messages. And if they identify you as a supporter, eventually you're going to start getting the calls for money. So parties work very hard to identify potential donors, and there's a lot of sophistication that goes into that. The science also of of different neighbourhoods, different demographic groups, and their likelihood to support particular parties with their voter financially, those things are very well developed. For example, I'm here in southern Alberta, which historically has been a very strong conservative support base. So after an election, typically the party will just go calling all through the constituency in which I live because their odds of being successful here are much higher than making calls somewhere else. So there's a lot of research and science that goes into it. It's not an amateur operation anymore at all.
2: Okay, so a question about uh, the election that was just called, like literally as we're recording the show, why would the government choose to start the campaign period so far in advance of Election Day?
3: Well, I guess that, that Stephen Harper looks at his war chest and he sees he has more resources, he has more money than the liberals or the NDP. So if he calls the election right now, he, he can afford basically to, to carpet bomb the country with, with an air war, with campaign ads, TV ads, radio ads, from now until Election Day. Whereas his opponents, the liberals and the NDP, who don't have the same amount of resources, will have, probably have to put off running their ads into maybe September, when more people are paying attention. Does that give Stephen Harper a huge advantage? No. Does it give him a slight edge? Maybe, probably. And Stephen Harper is nothing if not a tactical thinker, and he thinks that by calling an early election, it gives him a net tactical advantage over his opponents.
1: And just so our listeners know, the Prime Minister could have waited until about five weeks out from... October 19th to call this election. And so by choosing to do so early today, he's exercised um, a right that he has as prime minister to go to the governor general and ask to dissolve parliament. Correct. Jerry, why do you say only a slight advantage? I'm curious about that.
3: Well, I think the challenge that the conservatives are going to face, even if they have enough money to run ads through all of August, is that August, politically speaking, is a dark black hole. You know. People don't care about politics at the best of times.
1: Except Canada Coffins listeners, I just got to chime in and make sure everybody knows. We care about
3: this stuff (laughs) year-round. Except for the people who listen to this show, most people don't care about politics that much. And they care about it even less during August you know when they're trying to chill out they're at the cottage they're at the beach they're watching the Blue Jays they don't really want to be bothered by this so it's going to be much more difficult for the conservatives to reach voters uh, with their ad campaigns they're going to be doing fundraising it's almost impossible to do fundraising during August just because it's hard to reach people so yeah Harper's gonna be able to blanket the airwaves in August but I'm not sure all that many people are going to be listening but I think what he's thinking is look I have to get out there, there's a maxim in politics, define or be defined. So he wants to be able to define Thomas Mulcair and the NDP before they can define themselves. Because right now, Thomas Mulcair is probably still relatively unknown to most Canadian voters, so Stephen Harper's gonna try to portray him as scary as possible.
1: Now, Harold, let's back up for a minute and look at some basics. How much is a person in Canada allowed to give to a political party during a campaign?
4: There is no special uh, donation limit during a campaign, so there, the donation limits apply within a year. But to a national party, they're allowed to give $1,500. If there's a leadership contest, they're allowed to give $1,500 to a combination of people who are running for party nominations, or if they're candidates or to local associations. So there's a bunch of different limits. But basically, it's 1500 to a national party, and $1,500 to a combination of candidates and uh, nomination contestants and things like that.
1: And what about unions and corporations? They're allowed to give donations as well?
4: Historically in Canada, uh, unions and corporations were allowed to donate to political parties. In 2004, a law came into effect that banned corporate and union donations to the national parties. It allowed local candidates still to get up to $1,000 from corporations or unions, and that little loophole was taken away in 2006. So basically since 2006, there have been no corporate and union donations to national political parties.
2: Are we, for example, allowed to uh, organize as a group in political action communities, as they're called in the United States, and then create uh, their own line of advertising? This
4: is, I think, one of the big reasons for this early election call. Ordinarily, outside of elections, organizations, groups can advertise all they want to for or against particular points of view, particular candidates, particular issues, whatever they want to do. But during an election, there is a limit placed on how much what we call And this is a really confusing terminology, third-party spending. There's a limit to how much third parties can spend on their campaigns, about $150,000. And now, because the elections kicked in, these limits kick in early. So if there were a bunch of, uh, for example, there were rumors that public sector unions were planning a big advertising campaign against Stephen Harper, right before the election's called to get it in before it's called. Now they can't do that. They're under spending limits. And those are quite strict limits that you can't do a lot with that kind of money.
2: Also, it's a bit of a one-two punch then. Not only are you sort of starving out the competition by making it so long, but you're also blunting the impact of the third parties. Absolutely. A quick question on the uh, the Conservatives, because when we talk about uh, who's most effective at fundraising, apparently the Conservatives are chief raucous. So why is it that the Tories in recent years have been such effective fundraisers?
3: The conservatives are really good at mobilizing the grassroots base. Uh, They're very good at pushing emotional hot buttons. They're very good at sort of saying uh, the liberals and the NDP are bad guys and they're scary. I mean, the secret to fundraising, really, is not to appeal to someone's intellect. It's not to appeal to their brain. You want to appeal to their heart. You want them to react, not to think. And the conservatives are very good at sort of framing the, the situation for their donors to say, look, if you don't give us money and if you don't give us money right now, The socialists are going to win, or Justin Trudeau is going to win, and that will ruin Canada. So right now you have to give us money. And the conservatives are extremely aggressive in fundraising, and they always have been, and and, uh, that gives them a huge advantage over the other parties. The liberals traditionally have always relied on getting larger donations from a smaller group of people, which is why the law, which Harold was talking about putting limits on how much uh, money people could donate to a political party, has really hurt the liberals much more than it hurts the conservatives.
1: And Jerry, just to stick with you for a second here, uh, the NDP have become the official opposition since 2011. They grew their seat count to almost 100 in in, in parliament at one point. How much does that help their ability to fundraise? Have we seen any change in how the NDP fundraises since they became opposition?
3: I think it really helps them a lot because one of the most important factors in politics is momentum. You want to be seen as a moving train. People want to be on a moving train. They want to be on the winning side. So if Mulcair can send his fundraising letters, look, you know, the polls are showing us ahead. We're so close to victory. All we need is your support. Your support is crucial to help us get to the top. Don't let Stephen Harper, you know, take back the lead. So it really gives them a lot of good ammunition that they can use in their fundraising letters. Again, it's all an emotional appeal. The flip side of the coin are the liberals who are right now suffering what you might consider reverse momentum. That's going to make it more difficult for them to raise money because, hey, They're losing. Who wants to support a losing side? Who wants to invest in a losing side? Because we're talking about giving money here. And I'll tell you, there's nothing more difficult in politics than fundraising because you're convincing people to give money basically to an ideological idea, and that's that's a hard sell.
1: Jerry, you've really anticipated me here because the next thing I wanted to ask, and I'll turn to Harold on this one is, yeah, I mean, we have about, what, 5% political participation in our parties in Canada. I mean, people don't seem to love these parties. Why on earth do people give money to political parties, Harold? Explain this to me.
4: To be honest, I'm not entirely sure.
1: <laughs> okay.
4: <laughs> <laughs> and, and I say this because we actually tried to do a paper on this, and it's, it's really hard to find reasons. The kind of things we find, obviously, you need to have the money to be able to donate. But we even have found that income isn't a huge predictor. The main thing we found is people who feel some connection with the party. Party members are often and obviously very big donors. What I've noticed, and the Conservatives are really good at this, and being in government gives you an advantage on this, is they'll pick these odd sorts of battles. So it was about a year or two ago, The Conservatives, they were having a caucus meeting, it was the opening of caucus, and they wanted to have cameras there to show the caucus looking happy around Stephen Harper, but then they didn't want reporters to come, while the media refused to cooperate, right, and said, well, no, you either take the reporters or you don't. So it was this really bizarre, petty little battle. But that night, a big thing went out about how, look at the temerity of the national media, not willing to send reporters to fairly report on what we're doing. You need to donate to us so we can get our message out. Even things like in international development, there's been a big maternal health initiative, which is a really good thing. But a lot of people were concerned because one of the things it wasn't funding were was things like contraception and access to abortion. People who are pro-life are more likely to be conservative supporters, and the conservatives can point to that. See how we are defending your interests. We are on your side. There is this affinity. Yes, we haven't recriminalized abortion, but... We are doing these little things that matter, and you can use those things to fundraise among groups that are receptive to those sorts of ideas.
2: It might resonate with somebody like my grandmother, for example. Exactly. Um, Now, Jerry, you've done political fundraising work before, and you've done that both in the United States and here in Canada. So, you know, speaking of those messages, which ones do you find to be the most effective?
3: Politics uh, stripped down to its basic essential is really tribal. It's all about us versus them. And so if you want to raise money from people, you have to say, us are under attack. And, and hell's right, They're, the media is an enemy for conservatives. Unions are an enemy for conservatives. Justin Trudeau is seen as an enemy to conservatives. We have to make sure that they don't beat us, give us money, and give it to us right now. You have to sort of create, again, that sense of urgency. You have to hit that emotional appeal. You have to make it look like this is a battle between good and evil. And the other thing I would suggest uh, why people give money is access. They want to be able to think that they have a pipeline to people who are in power. So this is why they all have these receptions and dinners and stuff. So a guy can say, oh, you know, I had dinner with the prime minister the other day. And they said, oh, wow, that was really cool. It'll impress his friends. Of course, he won't say that there were 600 other people at the dinner with the Prime Minister. Uh, But it makes them look good to their associates. So I think there's a lot of psychological components.
1: We've actually got a clip on that, Jerry. Hang on.
5: My name is Duff Conacher, and I'm co-founder of Democracy Watch. Political donations, like any gift or favour, have influence based on actually the science of influence. And what the science of influence has shown is that even very, very small gifts and favours change people's behavior it creates a psychological sense of obligation to return the favor
4: well i mean we're getting into the whole issue about whether fifteen hundred dollars buys you any meaningful influence i'd point out two things uh number one is that for most political parties fundraising is handled at arm's length from the people in power from the prime minister cabinet party leaders they aren't directly involved in the fundraising thing. There is a bit of a wall between those things. So Stephen Harper doesn't sit and have a list of everybody who donated 1500 and he goes through it regularly. Uh, the second thing is, I guess I would argue $1,500, I don't think, buys any meaningful sort of access. Say if I donated $1,500 and I call up the Prime Minister's office and the Prime Minister's on the phone with Barack Obama and then the his secretary runs in and says, Harold Jansen is on the lines. Wait, he donated $1,500. Drop everything. I'm going to take his call. I mean, it, it doesn't work that way. I'm sorry. $1,500 isn't that much. What we moved to when we, when we set up Canada's first party finance laws in 1974, the plan was to try to encourage lots of people to donate smaller amounts, to try to reduce the chance that any one person would have influence. And so we did that through a tax credit system. The tax credits that you get for donating to political parties are the most generous tax credits in the tax system. They are incredibly generous, $100, that you can write $75 of that off. That is meant to encourage lots of donors. And part of the reason the Conservatives are so good at it is one of their predecessor parties, the Progressive Conservatives, were the first to figure out that incentive and that it made sense to raise money for the grassroots. I mean, I I think there is a point at which large donations make a difference. I don't think $1,500 is close to that.
1: So, Jerry, what the two of you actually seem to be saying is that money has influence in elections, but maybe that we shouldn't overestimate the influence that money has, both on the individual donor level and even the party level of who has more money. Is that, is that a fair comment?
3: I always cringe when people talk about money, you know, quote unquote, buying elections. I don't think you can buy an election. There's plenty of examples in, in history where uh, people who've spent a lot of money have lost. All money can do is make sure people hear your idea and won't necessarily persuade them. So I'm always leery about all these attempts to, to restrict money and politics. And in fact, I think all those, you know, all those restrictions do, at the end of the day, are help incumbent parties. Because if you're the incumbent political party, as the Conservatives are federally, you have a lot of advantages. You know, you pass legislation, the Prime Minister gets to go on these world junkets and pose with kings and emperors and looks like a statesman. And, of course, we know the Conservatives are not averse to spending government money on ads which say, you know, how how great the economy is and how jobs are being created and all this kind of stuff. And it kind of sounds like ads when they're paid for by taxpayers, it's kind of a controversial thing. But it's something that, you know, basically all governments do that kind of stuff. It just gives them another advantage. So if you're an opposition party and you want to fight against that, you're going to have to have access to resources to get your message out, to sort of get your propaganda out. So if you're limited in the amount of money you can raise, if you're limited in the amount of money you can spend, it really puts a damper on that. And this puts opposition parties at a disadvantage.
2: Okay, guys, so we, we have another clip where we talk about the possibility that financing rules are being bent. So let's just go ahead and play that for you and I'll ask you a question.
3: In Quebec,
5: what happened between 2006 and 2011, based on an audit by Elections Quebec, they found $12.8 million had been funneled by corporations through their executive members and their employees to political parties. And that was just part of also secret cash donations being made that weren't even recorded, part of a huge corruption scandal in Quebec. All this money and donations was really being made so that contracts would be handed out to the companies making the donations. And lots of violations of uh, both the election donation rules uh, and political donation rules and also the criminal code in terms of straight-up bribery.
2: So uh, any thoughts on that?
3: You know, government has the power to uh, pick winners and losers in the economy. The uh, the government has a lot of power to help corporations or hurt corporations. There's lots of things government can do these days to affect the the economic climate. So it's not surprising that people are going to try to influence government. Now, I guess uh, Democracy Watch says, oh, well, the way to stop that is to impose draconian limits on how much people can give to political parties. Uh, Well, you know what? that's not going to work because as long as people uh, see that government can can influence things they're going to try and reach government if they can't do it openly through contributions they'll do it in other ways and that leads to these kind of corruption scandals i say the answer to this is well limit the power of government you'll know, take away government's power to influence the economy and then corporations and businesses would, you know, wouldn't want to influence them so much.
2: Okay, so i got to step on this one because um, when you say draconian limits, what are you talking about?
3: Well, I think putting a limit of $1,500 to a political party, I think that's absurdly low.
2: Well, how much would how much would make you happy?
3: Well, you know, I don't believe in any limits. I think people should be allowed to give as much as they want. Giving money is an expression. Of but if free you space. say that,
2: sorry, I don't mean to cut you off here. But when you say that, you know, uh, money basically equals freedom, and money equals speech. Well, that means that somebody who has more money therefore has more speech.
3: It just means they have an, a, an opportunity to get their message out. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I mean, you could say that about anything in society. People who have more resources have ability to, to make their voice heard. And it doesn't, it doesn't have to be just money. If you're a celebrity, you're going to get your voice heard. Like, look at Donald Sutherland. He was whining about not being able to vote, and he's in the front page of every newspaper in the country. It's not because he has a lot of money. It's because he's a celebrity. And there's no way you're going to enforce some kind of you know, equality or any kind of level playing field because someone is always going to have an advantage in some situation.
1: Harold, I got to get you in on this because, you know, the lifetime fundraiser is telling us no limits on fundraising. Harold, the idea of unlimited donations, we see how money has affected campaigns in the United States. And there's a lot of talk about how it corrupts politics in the United States. Should we open up the ability for people to donate? And should we be worried if we do that about potentially having too much influence in our elections?
4: There's two principles here. There's the principle of Political equality and fundamentally elections are about political equality because everybody, when it comes down to it, has a vote. And that's that's the key thing. But there is a very important political freedom side to it. I mean, a pretty cornerstone right of our democracy is that we can argue for the positions that we have and use the resources we have to try to achieve our political ends. But these rights have to be simultaneously Recognize, and they're a bit at tension with each other. So I, I think unlimited donations are a problem. I think, as you put it earlier, money by speech. The reality of the modern campaign, modern dynamics is that it all requires money. we want to make sure that all points of view have a chance to get heard and don't get drowned out. So that's why I think limits to spending are really, really important. And And I think limits on donations are a good idea. But... But I think where I would very much agree with Jerry is that if we don't create opportunities for political parties to raise the money that they need and do it legally and transparently with disclosures so we know who's donating, if if we don't make that possible, then parties find ways to work around it. So I, that's why I don't think really low limits are a great idea because I think it just encourages people to try to circumvent the
2: limits. What would you change then uh, besides the donation limits?
4: What I don't like about this longer campaign period, for example, is the changes brought in in the Fair Elections Act. We, we have a campaign spending limit. When the election is longer than 36 days, now that's now prorated based on the number of days we've added on. What I would have preferred to have seen is, okay, call the election early if you want, but you've got the same campaign spending limit because we have election reimbursements. Half of what parties spend get reimbursed to them. Um, So if they get to spend twice as much, the hit for us as taxpayers in subsidizing these campaigns is twice as much. So that, to me, is a problem. I am also troubled by the effect on third party spending when we extend this much longer. You can make an argument for why you don't want third parties dominating during an election campaign, but you've now frozen them out for even longer. I think the implications for freedom of speech there are more significant. So... I mean, there, there are a number of little changes, but a lot of them, I think, have to do with election timing and how the spending limits apply before and after elections. And we could quibble about the amounts. I, I don't think 1500 is unreasonably low or unreasonably high. But I mean, I think there's a range there. And that, that's just detail.
1: Okay, Jerry, I think we're going to give you the last word. Is the system that we have for fundraising and donating, is the money system in Canada for our elections fair?
3: Well, I, I think there's lots of problems, and I would just echo some of the things Harold said. I think it's wrong that taxpayers are basically financing political party spending through. Through these rebates, I think that's wrong. I would get rid of that, and I think that would go a long way to reducing the problems of political party spending that much, because I don't think they'd be able to spend 30 or 50 million dollars if they were just using their own money. Uh, and I would echo what we said about third parties too. I mean, I I used to work for an organization called the National Citizens Coalition, and we went to the Supreme Court of Canada to fight for the rights of organizations to be able to speak out during elections and we lost. But I'll tell you one thing that's interesting is that the guy who led the fight, the guy who was my boss in those days was Stephen Harper. Imagine. So one of the things I'm disillusioned about is that Stephen Harper did not get rid of this election gag law to allow third parties to advertise during elections. But of course, the reason he didn't it's because he's afraid of what the unions would do to him, that they'd go after him with, with an ad campaign. Me, I believe in a free marketplace of ideas. I think the more ideas that are out there, the better. That's good for democracy.
1: Guys, thank you so much for being on the show today.
3: Yeah, my pleasure. Thank Thanks you. for having me.
1: All right, Andre, there was a lot to digest from that conversation. I know you want to get into a couple of things. But overall, do you think that money has a fair or relatively balanced impact in our politics? I would say it's much more
2: balanced here than where I grew up. I came by my formative years in politics in the United States, and it's like a wild west. So the idea that there would be a $1,500 campaign finance limit would be completely unheard of there. I only have the ability to compare it with the United States, and I would say, yes, it's much more fair here. Where Such a you-
1: Canadian answer. We're better than the <laughs> U.S. So. I
2: know, I know, I know, I know. But the idea of keeping it to $1,500, you know, if you've got 1500 bucks and you donated it, you're not going to get on the phone with Stephen Harper and have a lengthy conversation, whereas... There are wealthy Texas oil barons who can get on the phone with the president. Yeah, I think it's much more fair here. I do still think that there are some problems, though, that we got to work through. One of the problems being the ability for the prime minister to just screw around with the election structure. I think we should have a fixed date for the election and also a fixed date by which we call the election. An 11-week election period is just weird, and I'm not into it.
1: You know, it feels like from doing this show for the little while that we've been doing it now, we keep seeing this pattern that like we're really deferential to the prime minister's judgment. Like whenever he feels like doing something, he should kind of just be able to wake up one morning and just kind of figure it out on his. We really like like
2: that. I feel like having an election today. Nah. You know, I'm busy for the
1: next couple of days. Oh, wait,
2: wait, hang on a sec. Y'all don't have no money. Oh, you ain't got money. All right. 11 (laughs) weeks. Boom. Here
1: we go. That is bizarre to me. It is beyond weird. And I I want to hear what Commons listeners think of that, too. Another thing that I think a lot of people don't believe when it comes to the influence of money is that this stuff is all going on above board. That everything that we see, all the rules that you're supposed to follow in order to donate, that they're actually what dictate the election and because the Because our government tells the truth all the time, right? Now, so let's get into that. Because you can set a limit on people and say you are only allowed to donate this much. But of course, if money has an influence in politics, there's always an incentive for people to try and break the rules, give more money than they're supposed to, and give it in secretive ways. And Duff Conacher actually touches on that in this clip.
5: What's happened since 2004 is no indication That Elections Canada and the Commissioner of Canada Elections, who enforces the law, have done audits to ensure that there have not been uh, donation funneling, taking their money, funneling it through their employees and executives, and funneling it to political parties and candidates, given that in Quebec when an audit was finally done, that found $12.8 million of funnel donations. It would just be simply naive to think that no one, no corporation, business or union or other organization has ever tried to do this funneling at the federal level.
2: That is the part that really weirds me out. So with all of these rules in place, you're telling me that anybody could just go ahead and bend or break the rules
1: and who's actually enforcing this? That is supposed to be election Canada's job. And you know, I think we gotta be careful Because we don't have any evidence to prove that there's some kind of huge corruption money funneling scandal going on at the federal level. There could be an incentive for that, but there's no evidence that it's actually going on. I think we have to be responsible and say that.
2: I hate to be the tinfoil hat wearing guy that says absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. But I think you want to stay in power, like and not just the person in, or the group in power, but also if you're like a large corporation, for example, and you want the good times to continue, you want lack of regulation, then yeah, I think that there are people who are out there to game the system that aren't being caught. I'm much more worried about rigging the system at the corporate level uh, than down at the grassroots level because there are so few people involved. Like Everyone knows everyone. It's a lot easier to cheat when you
1: know all the players. Yeah, not to leave everybody with the sad reality that Andre's is dishing out for us here. I actually think that one of the most hopeful things about that conversation we just had was the notion that he who spends the most money, she who spends the most money. Okay, I he, I will go with he. We know what's just going just on just here. Yes, he who spends the most money does not necessarily always win. So despite everything that you're saying, despite the fact that there's incentives for corruption, despite the fact that people can try to cheat behind closed doors and maybe get away with it, you can still win if you have a good message. You can still win if you're more organized. You can still win if you appeal to people in a way that they are receptive to. And money cannot completely overcompensate for that. And I, and I have faith in that. That's the program for today, everybody. And remember, it is officially election time in Canada. I'm
2: going to cut you off really quick because we are reaching out to the federal leaders. We're reaching out to Prime Minister Stephen Harper. We're reaching out to Justin Trudeau and to Thomas Mulcair.
1: Hopefully, we'll be able to facilitate a few conversations with our political leaders that could only happen on this show. We'll keep you posted. Alright everyone, help us keep this week's conversation going. Find us on Twitter by searching for Canadaland Commons. It's the first thing that pops up. As always, a shout out this week to our producer, Imogen Burchard.
2: And music credits go to Nathan Burley and Woo Tang! Woo Tang. Find us online at CanadalandShow.com. My email address is Andre at Canadalandshow.com and Desmond at Canadalandshow.com. You can subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please chip in. That's patreon.com slash CanadaLand.
1: Show us some love. Give us a five-star rating. Tell everyone you know that it is election time and this is the place to get your news.
2: The next CanadaLand Shortcuts will be back Thursday and CanadaLand Commons returns Tuesday. Until then, protect your neck. Getting you the views you need. Canadian politics done your way Canada
0: Land Commons because the truth matters to you That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com.